from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloronipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 11th. Today, a 70-year covert operation, the ethics of quarantining a cruise ship, and the truth about the blue-collar boom. So um, I, I can try to encode a message now. That is the sound of one of the early primitive encryption machines that countries used and, in fact, the United States used in World War II. Greg Miller covers national security for The Post. It's a pretty small device. It weighs about eight pounds. It has a hand crank. And it looks kind of like a music box on steroids with all these things spinning around inside of it and spitting out garbled messages that could be decrypted by their intended recipients. And does this machine have a name? It was called the M209, and it was made by a company called Crypto AG. And so who would use these machines, and what scenarios would would they be used? So for that machine, it was only basically used for troops. But the company that grows out of this supplies encryption machines for governments all over the world for their diplomats, militaries, and for their intelligence services. And these are not just U.S. allies that are using these machines. No. So Crypto AG, this company, it became a company based in Switzerland that ended up selling encryption devices and systems to well over 100 countries around the world. Almost anywhere you look on the globe or on a map of the world, you're going to find countries that were buying crypto equipment. So almost every country in the Middle East, including Iran, Saudi Arabia, almost every country in Africa, almost every country in Latin America, in some ways it's easier to start thinking of the countries that didn't buy these machines. The Soviet Union did not buy machines from crypto. Of course, they weren't going to trust any company based in Western Europe with their security, nor did China. But almost anywhere else you look, they were using crypto machines. So you've been looking into the history of this company. Well, so our decision to look at it was driven by a revelation that we really didn't go looking for. We came into possession of some astonishing documents that laid the entire history of this company completely bare. This company, which supplied the much of the world with encryption devices, was, for most of its history, owned and run by the CIA. In a partnership with the West German Intelligence Service, BND. Wait, so the CIA was actually the one providing all these encryption machines to governments and entities around the world? There are some terrific lines and language in these documents we have in which even the architects of this operation are blown away at the core idea of it, right? The idea that here we are selling equipment for often hundreds of thousands of dollars to other countries. They are paying us for the privilege of us listening to everything they say through these devices. So the CIA essentially had the ability to uncode and read all of these messages that were supposedly sent through this 
ultra-high-tech secret process. You have to think of it this way. By 1970, the CIA and the BND own this company. They buy it from its founder, and they are running it from then forward until very recently. But the way they use it is careful. They basically use it to embed hidden vulnerabilities in all of these thousands and thousands of devices that other countries and governments are buying. They then have to intercept those messages, right? The device itself doesn't have a secret button that is secretly transmitting signals back to the CIA at Langley. The United States and other its allies still have to collect those messages as they're being sent, whether it's through the air or through fiber optic cables or whatever. But the American understanding of how these things are built and control over how they're built enables the United States to decrypt, that is, unlock the secret codes that dozens and dozens of governments are using. So how did this happen, that the CIA was basically able to have this company be a front for an encryption system that they essentially had the keys to unlock? The short version of it is that this company was founded by a Swedish engineer and entrepreneur who gets his first big contract with the U.S. Army. It comes out of World War II. We're in the midst of the Cold War. And out of a sense of loyalty to the United States and ideological affinity for the West, agrees over time to a series of agreements with the CIA to keep his best stuff, his most effective encryption products, out of the hands of adversaries of the United States in Western Europe. And that, over time, that relationship deepens. Soon he's getting paid by the CIA hundreds of thousands of dollars to not sell those devices to certain countries. Finally, as he gets older and wants to get out of the company, the CIA and the Germans step forward and say, we'll buy it. But presumably the people who were working at the company at the time had no idea that West Germany and the U.S. were paying money to essentially own the company. Yeah, I think to me that's one of the more fascinating aspects of this operation and of these documents and these histories is that only a couple of employees at any moment in time knew what the truth was, knew who the real owners were. Almost all of the rank-and-file employees were intentionally kept in the dark. Some of them at various times developed significant suspicions because of how the company was operated. And have you talked to people who were there at the time and who maybe didn't know until now that they were actually working for the CIA without their knowledge? Yeah. I, I mean, I was in Europe for a trip last month and traveled through a number of countries and met with at least a half dozen of these former employees of crypto. Can you introduce yourself, tell us your name and what you did for crypto? Okay, I'm Jörg Spernle, electrical engineer at the time. and Several of them were engineers and in the research and development department, and they were always really close to the company's core secret, you know, the algorithms and the encryption systems. They're the ones who are working with these designs. We should be clear. I mean, nobody ever told you specifically while you were working at the company that in secret it was working with foreign intelligence services. Formally, no one informed me nor, nor anyone else uh, in the engineering that, that we were limited in terms of the, of the quality of the security level of our equipment. 
And they were mentioned in these documents because they were identified as like problems, right? These are employees that were raising concerns about what was happening. They were starting to catch then, on. Yeah, and they have to, and the secret hand here, the secret owners have to deal with them. One of them was really fascinating. It's a woman named Mengia Kaflish. And she's identified in the documents as somebody that the CIA freaked out about when this company decided to hire her. She applied for a job there. She has an amazing background as an electrical engineer, PhD in electrical engineering, worked in the United States for a number of years. They bring her in and the CIA goes nuts. Why are you hiring this woman? She is too smart. She is going to figure (laughs) out what is happening here. And they confront the company's chief executive, but by then it's too late. Another one of her colleagues uh, sat down with us. His name is Jörg Spurndling. And he also had these suspicions, and he explained to me how almost in their off time as sort of independent projects, he and Kaflish would take the devices and kind of pull them apart and try to figure out what was going on inside these things. Why were they designed to work the way they were? There seemed to them obvious flaws in them. And for some reason, they were always prevented from fixing them. Wait, so the people who are working on these machines are spotting vulnerabilities inside of them, but when they bring these vulnerabilities up, they're prevented from fixing them. That must have been such a weird, concerning tension for them. This tension is at the core of this whole operation because you need smart people to do this job, to design these products and make them in a way that's going to be able to sell. But you need them not to be too smart. You need them not to be able to figure out what the real secret is here. And you would have cases. In fact, one, this woman that I mentioned, Mengia Kathlish, She designed an algorithm on her own. She's that smart. She's looking at these things. This doesn't look strong enough. We should make it better. Here, use this algorithm in in this encryption. The company takes it, puts it in a machine, one of its devices in the late 1970s, and starts manufacturing them. And they are 50 of them are rolling off the factory floor before the company executives figure out, oh, no. This has real secure stuff in it. Our owners are not going to be able to crack it, and they have to grab them. They have to confiscate them. Do we know about, like, what situations or in what historical moments the U.S. was helped by having access to secret messages or messages that were supposedly sent in secret by other countries or other entities? Yeah, so there's a certain amount of that in the documents themselves, instances, global crises, things that happen where this program enables the United States to figure out what's really happening behind the scenes in a particular country. But given the scale of the operation and its duration, it's almost mind-boggling to try to think about, well, other situations where this must have been or probably was a factor. But just to name a few, the Iran hostage crisis from 1979. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It's Friday Iran was one of the biggest customers of crypto devices, and the Carter administration relies on that to listen to the Iranians as they're trying to engage in back-channel negotiations for the hostages' release. We're using every available channel to protect the safety of the hostages and to secure their release. There were other instances. There was a bombing of a disco in Berlin in 1986. Little was left of the West Berlin disco, devastated by a bomb while the club was packed with several hundred persons. Over 150 were injured, about 70 of them American servicemen. The Reagan administration was able to figure out that that was 
a Libyan-orchestrated bombing, that Libya was responsible. We have considerable evidence over the uh, quite a long period of time that Gaddafi has been quite outspoken about uh, his participation in urging on and supporting uh, terrorist acts. Because Libya was using crypto devices. In the 1980s, the British end up in a war with Argentina over control of the Falkland Islands. Argentina today invaded and seized the Falkland Islands, which have been under British rule for nearly 150 years. Britain promptly broke diplomatic relations with Argentina, sent several of Her Majesty's warships... And the United States is secretly funneling intelligence to the Brits about their adversary in this conflict. And Argentina sort of figures this out at some point. And the company actually sends a representative to Buenos Aires to talk them down and say, no, 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 you, you're wrong. It's the, these, these things are secure. It must be some other device that you're using that you're having the problems with, or maybe you're not using them right. So officials in Argentina were were thinking that it could have been the mis- the machines that they'd started to catch on. Yeah, they are, they started to catch on, and that's really one of the weird things that this history tells us is just how gullible countries can be over and over again. There are numerous cases involving Iran and Argentina where they develop suspicions. They think there's there's problems with these devices, but they are almost always persuaded that it's their problem, they're using them wrong, or it's some other explanation, and they keep using them. One of the things that helps the deception here is that is where this company is based and where it comes from. Swiss neutrality serves to insulate it, right? It's perceived as akin to a Swiss bank and safe, a safe company to buy from, neutral, not going to be necessarily in league with the United States or any intelligence services. So that was critical to the way it was perceived around the world. Are these machines still in use today? The answer is yes. So like the machine that we started off listening to from World War II, I think those are like in a handful of museums and nobody would use that stuff anymore. But crypto equipment is still in place in more than a dozen and probably at least two dozen countries around the world even now. They have longstanding client relationships all around the world. And as I said, countries are strangely lazy and not very careful in astonishing ways about securing their communications. So I think in many cases, they just never unplug these things. They just keep using them and it's too much trouble to try to convert everything to some new system that some other company or some other entity is selling. And does the CIA still own this company? No, I'm very confident that the agency finally left just two years ago in 2018 when the company's assets were broken up into pieces and sold to three different entities. But even if the CIA has now gotten out of the business of trying to secretly funnel this technology to other countries, what do you think is the legacy of the fact that behind the scenes they were basically running this kind of operation in secret for many decades? It tells us, I think, a lot about us as a country now and our intelligence services. I mean... Having the ability to read more than 100 countries' secret communications, maybe that helps us to understand how the United States intelligence agencies became such voracious consumers of surveillance, how they became almost addicted to the ability to monitor the communications of almost every country around the world. 
And that leads us into where we are now and what we know about it from like the disclosures of Edward Snowden. So crypto becomes less relevant over time as new encryption capabilities emerge. But the NSA is turning, constantly looking for new doors to open. That even if the technology from crypto is no longer in use, that the processes in place and the expectations of what kinds of information and messages the CIA would want to see or believes it should be able to see, that that continues into today. Yeah, I think there's two things. One is just the appetite that you develop. Once you become accustomed to seeing all of this and knowing all of this all of the time, you don't want to give that up. You're not going to let go of that. And the other is you end up rationalizing the deception and exploitation that is at the core of this. You've spent decades deceiving allies and adversaries. You've deceived and exploited hundreds and hundreds of employees at this company. And that is just sort of all chalked up to the price of doing business in espionage. Greg Miller covers national security for The Post. This is uh, Simon Denyer for the Washington Post. I'm standing by the side of the Diamond Princess in Yokohama Port right now. Uh, There's a bank of around 20 TV cameras trained on the ship and looking at what's going on. The ship's just a few yards away from me here. A group of, I'd say, about 8 to 10 people in white medical protective clothing head to foot, clad head to foot have just walked on board the ship Uh, we just saw an ambulance come to presumably to evacuate one of the people who have been told that they tested positive for coronavirus they're all being taken off the ship they're going to be taken to local hospitals in Japan where they will be quarantined and given treatment On the ship, there's 3,700 people, about 2,700 passengers, and about 1,000 crew. It has affected so far about 130 people. They have been confirmed to have the virus. If you're sick, you get taken off. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. Everyone else is confined to their room except for a few minutes each day when they let them on deck to get some fresh air. Or, even worse, in the case of the crew, confined to rooms that may have as many as four people in them. This virus spreads by person-to-person contact, probably from the droplets of people sneezing or coughing or talking or whatever. And... It doesn't take very long to realize that if you have all these people confined together, breathing near one another, the virus is going to spread.
So this is an increasingly urgent public health crisis that's happening on this cruise ship. Yes, getting more urgent by the day and getting more complicated by the day because the original idea was to protect people in Japan, which had very, very few cases when this ship pulled up. But now this ship has more cases than any place outside China, more than Hong Kong, more than Macau, more than Taiwan, way more than Japan. So now, while you may very well have protected the Japanese public, you have created a coronavirus problem of its own on this ship, and it is clearly spreading. So who is responsible for this decision, and what are some people saying about the concerns they have with making that decision, with the fact that all these people are stuck on this ship now? The Japanese health ministry made this decision and decided that this was the way it was going to approach this situation. The Princess Cruise Company was involved and continues to update us on what's happening. The critics tend to come from outside. And while they say originally this may have been a reasonable decision to make, now it is clear that it's not working. It needs to be amended. It needs to be rethought. And perhaps we need to start evacuating the healthy from that ship in small numbers and putting them in places where they're quarantined so that they can't infect other people. And is there a concern that the fact that people are stuck in these very small spaces could be exacerbating their risk of getting infected or even that the coronavirus could be transmitted through something like the ventilation system? That's a very common fear. People are worried about that. But every expert we spoke to said very unlikely that if this is being passed person to person, it's being passed by direct contact. Now, people are wearing masks and they're trying to stay six feet away from each other. But, you know, the crew has to come around and deliver food and people have to go up on deck sooner or later. So we don't really know. And what have we heard from people who are stuck on the ship about what it's like to just be essentially waiting to see if you get infected? They're very nervous. They're pretty amenable to this idea. They understand why it's been done. They're trying to amuse themselves. But clearly... With those numbers increasing, clearly people are worried. Some members of the crew have put in a plea for help. There are a lot of Indian nationals on board, and they posted a video. This has been the crew member of Taiwan Princess. Right now, I am just very scared. All of crew also scared day by day, increasing the coronavirus positive. So please, I'm just requesting to our government and Japanese government, please, those people are not infected, just separate them from the others. And make, uh, so what is the game plan here? One of the problems is that the Japanese government does not have the capacity right now to test everyone on the ship. They've said they can test 1,000 a day, or, but they've never really explained why they don't have the capacity to test everyone on the ship. So that's what you'd like to do, right, is sweep through the ship, test everyone. Everyone who tests positive gets taken off. Well, right now that hasn't happened. So until they can do that, until they can come up with a plan that encompasses everyone, there really is no plan. There's just kind of taking it day by day, 
seeing what happens, testing as many as you can, and then bringing those to hospitals. And the people who are on the ship, do they have access to health care or if they start feeling somewhat sick, do they have the ability to very quickly get tested and say, hey, I think I need to go to a hospital? So the basic test is to check someone with a thermometer for fever. So if your temperature goes up over a certain level or you start to show some of the early signs of this coughing, sneezing, other respiratory illnesses, you're supposed to single yourself out, tell the crew, I'm starting to show symptoms, and then theoretically they will isolate you. There is some healthcare on board, but it is reliant on people coming around and testing you for fever. We don't really understand the incubation period, so you could have the virus for some period of time before your fever goes up. And what do you think this specific case of this cruise ship says about the state of the coronavirus outbreak right now and our level of preparedness to deal with it? I think almost everybody would admit that even the United States and developed nations are not totally prepared to deal with something like this. You will get arguments on how prepared we are. We, you know, Some people say we're pretty well prepared. And look, we've only had 13 cases so far here in the United States. No government, to my knowledge, feels fully prepared to deal with something that like what's going around right now. That's why you see a lot of stuff being done ad hoc and a lot of reacting to events on the ground. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. Hello, Manchester, and I am thrilled to be in the great state of New Hampshire with thousands of hardworking patriots who believe in God, family, and country. Thank you. Thank you. And now one more thing. A reality check from New Hampshire, the state that's holding its presidential primary today. We are going to win New Hampshire in a landslide. This is a truly incredible time for America. We have the best economy we've ever had. In the days leading up to the primary, President Trump has been talking about New Hampshire's blue-collar boom, using the state as an example of how he's ushered in a great American comeback. Since my election, America has gained 7 million new jobs. The unemployment rate has hit the lowest rate in a half a century. Washington politicians, I mean, you know this, they shuttered New Hampshire factories. You were one of the worst examples ever, NAFTA. But I'm not like those other politicians. I keep my promises. We took care of it. We took care of it. Does it feel like it actually can get better? Like that, I mean, Trump is out there saying, this is the best economy in American history. It's never been, you've never had it so good. And it certainly doesn't seem that way here. It's just not like that here, you know. I mean, the people that are making all the money these days is the elite. You know, the people with a lot of money, the uh, big corporations. Griff Whitty is a national reporter for The Post. So I went to Berlin, New Hampshire, to find out what that blue-collar boom looks like on the ground in a city that's about as blue-collar 
as you can get. It's set in the mountains. It's quite beautiful in terms of the natural scenery. But Berlin is also a place that's really struggling. The economy, you can look at, well, let's say, look at jobs. Unemployment rate is the lowest that has been in, you know, whatever amount of years. The problem is, is all the jobs are service jobs. And they don't pay a livable wage. Even if you're making $10, $12 an hour these days, when you look at your health insurance and what that costs you, and then you looked at you can't even use the health insurance because the deductible is $6,000 a person, things become unaffordable in a hurry. Eddie Deblois is 64 years old. He grew up in Berlin. And for most of his life, he worked at the Brown Company paper mill. How many years in total were you in the mill? Um, I was in the mill 42 years. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to stay in the mill mm-hmm. the entire time. I, mm-hmm. I had minor layoffs mm-hmm. um, where I just collected unemployment for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some people never get back in the mill or they, they were out so long that um, it devastated their savings and they weren't able to really recover. For a very long time, this was a mill that offered thousands of jobs. And for the people who worked there, this was their ticket to a middle-class life. But as is the case in a lot of mill towns across America, factory towns, the mill has gradually gone bust. Over the last couple decades, it went from thousands of employees to hundreds of employees. Now it's down to dozens of employees. It's basically barely functioning now. And that's had a big impact on the city and on the people who live there. The manufacturing jobs, I don't see them coming back. If we're going to be a, a country where, where most of the jobs are in the service industry, well, then we need to make those livable paying jobs. So something needs to happen. And there's a lot of distress in Berlin and a lot of fears about the future and fears that if this is what a boom in America looks like, what is a bust going to look like? I think the general consensus is that the city uh, is just trying to find a new niche and and stabilize itself. Mm. We'll never... I don't think anybody can envision the town growing to the days that we, when we were 25,000 people mm. um, and there was many businesses thriving and uh, good paying jobs were plentiful. Mm. But I think, you know, most people are just saying, if we can hold our own and, you know, let's if we can even keep, uh, maybe improve downtown and do some of these little things and keep, you know, the base jobs that we have. Again, I don't think we're going to see large manufacturing jobs, uh, you know, coming to the area. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. He spoke to Eddie Deblois from Berlin, New Hampshire. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Shout out to Tom Rad from Canada, a self-described podcast addict who left a nice review of the show on Apple Podcasts. If you're a frequent listener of Post Reports, rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps other podcast addicts find our show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 
Thank you.